When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hello and welcome to How To Money, a financial education podcast for young Australians aimed at opening up the conversation around money. In each episode, your host, Kate Campbell, brings in a variety of guests to explore everything from buying shares to starting your own business, all with the aim of kickstarting your personal finance journey. Just a quick reminder that everything we cover in this podcast is for financial education purposes only, and we are not giving you any advice. If you do want advice, please seek the help of a qualified and competent professional and do some research. Remember, it's your money, so take control. Hi, Effie. Thank you so much for joining us on the How To Money podcast today. Hello, Kate. It is a pleasure to be on your show. Wonderful. Well, before we get started, it'd be great if you could introduce yourself and a little bit about your background in the financial services industry and your role at CanStar. I wear many hats. I think that comes with being in the industry for so long. I am the editor at large for CanStar. I also sit on the board of directors for Extra, a not-for-profit organisation with financial capability. And I do the uh, Today Show money segments. I'm an author of both a kid's book, which I'm very proud of because that uh, actually came out of the need of my son to be a bit more financial literate. And uh, I have uh, published a a book targeted to women from Converse to Louboutin so a real girl's guide to money. So I actually did fall into this industry, to to be honest. Um, My background is finance. I did a Bachelor of Economics at uh, UQ in Queensland and um, was in banking for several years and uh, then fell into TV once I met, uh, you know, the true financial guru, Paul Clithrow. (laughs) Wonderful. So what I wanted to talk about today was more about understanding our money story because I talk a lot about setting financial goals and all sorts of ways to improve your financial future. But a lot of that's really hard to do if you don't actually take time to reflect back on how you grew up with money, how money was treated in your family and your school and your environment growing up. So I think it's really important to actually take some time to reflect. And I thought you were the perfect person to do that because of your experience as the editor of Money Magazine and meeting people from all over Australia, from all different works of life and really sort of looking into how does our childhood and upbringing affect our relationship with money today? Yeah, and a lot of us don't realise where our money behaviour does come from. And by no means am I a psychologist or a behavioural expert, but I guess after 20 years or so in this industry and working with behavioural economists, I actually used one in my book. There's a chapter there that just goes on about, I earn 150K, why am I so broke? So whether you earn 150 
okay, is irrelevant. It, it could be you earned 30000 Why do you feel broke? Versus, you know, someone at 130000 Why are they feeling broke? And what I've learned is that when it comes to money, it's more than just dollars and cents. A lot of it is in, to do with our mind and how we associate and feel about money. Mm. And uh, they do know that behaviours have started very young, as early as up to seven, the mindset of money kicks in. And I'm a great believer that if you think your kids aren't good with money, then take a good look at yourself because chances are the behaviour has come from you as well. Because I do hear a lot of people say, oh, and I was never good with money growing up and that sort of behaviour really sticks with them as an adult. Um, maybe yeah. their friends told them or they were just the person spending a lot so everyone just knew them as the person that wasn't good as money with money and that kind of sticks with you and it makes it really hard when you're trying to move forwards. Yeah. Look, I grew up in a, a small business family. My parents immigrated from Greece and had small businesses all their life. So Whilst um, it's interesting, my, my background is my parents shed a lot of their financial difficulty away from us and made us believe that you know, um, I actually thought we were billionaires and <laughs> I woke up one day and realised, oh, gee, we're not, mainly because they didn't talk about money to us. Mm. And I, I guess my thirst for knowledge came out of the fact that I wasn't given it. And I realized how hard my parents worked. Now, don't get me wrong. They made me understand the value of a dollar. Absolutely. But I just didn't realize how hard it was to make that dollar until probably I was around 17, 18. Because we didn't sit down and talk about the fact that, um, you know, my parents can't give me this because they just don't have that. They would just work harder to try and give us something, which is probably the worst thing they could do for us anyway. And what you'll find these days is a lot of parents do now involve their children in money matters. I certainly do because my parents didn't do it for myself. And so they're very aware of how hard it is to, to pay bills or where money comes from and how to budget because I just think that children do need to understand that, yeah, parents can have financial hardship. They can still be in a job, but it's still tough to actually make ends meet. Yeah, because it's really, I think it's important that you start to reflect on how you have grown up with money, but that, that can be really hard. So what are some of the ways that you've sort of suggested to people and you've seen people over the years reflect on the way they grew up and dealt with money and how understand how they were brought up and how that sort of mindset's affecting them today? When it comes to money matters, I think what was important for me and what I trans what I passed on to my children is that money isn't important, but what it can do and bring, I guess, is. So for us, it's never been a case of the more you earn, the better, um, the more you have, the better. For us, it's a case, well, what do you want? What is that security and how do you get there? So I have an 18-year-old and a 14-year-old and have approached it very differently because no child is the same. And, um, you know, my 18-year-old grasped it a lot earlier than my 14-year-old and that's okay. But it's a case of setting those goals with them. And it could be as simple as I know you know, my kids' goals were initially just to save up to buy a, um, a laptop or to save up to buy a phone. So I've kind of instilled in them that they actually have to play a part on this role and get that goal to them. So it's a very good understanding of why goals are so important. And it's not like I must have a goal of, you know, $1,000, but what is that goal that's going to give you that, you know, is it a holiday? Is it the phone? Is it the laptop? And for them to understand that they need to put these plans in place because it's just not going to happen. Mm, and the money's not just magically going to appear out of thin air. 
No, no. <laughs> hmm. Yeah, I don't know. Like growing up, if you're not talking about money, do you just assume that just food appears? Or I don't know, if your parents talk about going to work, well, you kind of assume that that's maybe how the food appears, but otherwise it just kind of you're fed? I don't know. Well, what can happen is that if you have not been discussing this with, with your children or you yourself have grown up in a family where this was not taught, then you could mm. enter into the adult world. And let's think about this. You get your first job, you get your first place, you're paying rent and you've got to juggle all this. And this is what we're finding now is that a lot of us are living from pay to pay because we've never really talked about, well, how do I manage all this? Nobody teaches you how to budget. There isn't a mm. course at school that says this is how to budget. We're just thrown into this life. And then we've got to remember, we've have a whole lot of disruptors that are coming here. And what I mean by that is that institutions are getting a lot more savvier on how they develop their products. And there are some good disruptors and there are some bad disruptors. When I think about products that have introduced, say, like a roundup feature, and very simple, but that was never about when I was a teenager. But now it is possible for you to actually start saving or start investing while you're spending. And this is a great disruptor. And I call it a great disruptor because it plays on the mind and it makes people set up a savings pattern or an investment. You know, you can now round up into exchange traded funds. And without actually realizing you are investing when you're spending. That's great. That's a great disruptor. But then we've got all these other disruptors, say, for example, buy now, pay later. I know a lot of people will argue and say, well, these are very cheap in the sense there are no interests. It's not a loan. It is a loan. You still have an IOU and it changes the way you spend. I mean, ASIC's reporting to that uh, industry clearly shows that people do spend more when it's easier to do. They're what I call a bad disruptor because they're playing on the psychology of how people spend, what the triggers that trip people, and they're building products around that. So unfortunately, if you haven't had the luxury of being taught how to manage your money through life, you're then thrown into the real world. You've got all these disruptors happening. And before you know it, you are in a mess. And once you are in a mess, I hate to say this, it is hard to get that monkey off your back if you Mm -hmm. don't put a strategy and plan. And this is why some of us are in debt for the rest of our lives and are constantly Mm -hmm. trying just to pay that debt back week by week. Yeah, and credit cards are really designed to keep you in credit card debt where they just say, oh, this is the minimum you need to pay to just keep the credit card ticking along. Like they're designed, they don't encourage you to pay off the credit card in full. Absolutely. And the interesting thing is when you look at who's taking up credit cards, the younger generation aren't. And that's great news. But what's happening, those other disruptors I was talking about, there seems to be a shift to that. And when you look at what um, the big institutions are doing, they're concerned because this is revenue, they're bread and butter. They love us to have credit cards Mm. because, you know, we've got them for life. But if they're losing market share, well, then what do we do? What's the next wave that we can take on? And that's why you do see a lot of organisations jumping onto these new disruptors to capture this instant credit. So... Whether we think, you know, millennials aren't using credit cards, they're being smarter, these other disruptors are playing on that behavioural need to want things now, want things instantly, and this is a new form of a credit card, so to speak. Mm, And I think it also sort of drives back to the need that you think that once you're an adult, you've got to have it all sorted. You've got to have the buy your first home, you've got to be able to have some savings, you've got to be able to go on a holiday. And that often sort of gets people into a hole if they haven't sort of structured their finances to save for those things. And they just suddenly think they should have it all sorted. So they go into debt and things to make it happen. 
Yeah. And, and there's not much. It, it's interesting. We find that um, it, it can be hard to juggle your money. But when you think about it, there's not much to making money. If you want to, I, I mean, I keep things pretty simple. There are only so many places you can invest. Obviously, yourself, you're your biggest asset. So you want to invest in yourself. Then you've got cash, fixed interest, shares or property. I mean, I don't overcomplicate things. Yes, there are whiz-bang ways that you can start investing and making money, but I like to stick to things that I know how they work. And the good old, you know, soon as you start, the better. You know, it's never too late, but obviously with the magic of compound interest, if it's just that regular behaviour that you do, then there's not much to creating wealth. It's just getting started. It's just doing it. And that fear of jumping in is probably why a lot of people find, well, why didn't I set up that automatic debit when I was 20 or 30 to start saving? Why did it take me until my 40s to start getting savvier about my money? And a lot of that does come back to the challenges we face talking to our friends and family about money because we don't, I mean, if we all talked about, oh, what's your budgeting strategy? Maybe we'd think, oh, well, I need one too. But I think because we don't actually talk about it that much with our family and friends, you can miss things. And this, and that's, that, that is really hard. I, I am seeing some improvement, but it still seems like it's a very difficult topic. So what are some of the challenges we do come up against when talking to friends and family about money and how can we overcome them? The thing is, when we talk to our friends about fitness, about recipes, about, you know, our love life, we virtually talk about everything and anything but money. And there is a little bit of a stigma there. We're afraid of if we are in a mess, we don't want people to know. Mm. If we earn too much, we don't want people to know. There seems to be this secrecy. But it's interesting, you can have a money buddy without having to, to divulge everything. In that sense mm. that if you want to talk to someone about, hey, you, how are you doing this? This seems to be working really well for you. How do you budget? Oh, how can you afford to do that? And that's another chapter that I have in my book. That, that like We look at other people and they go, how the hell are they affording that? And often mm. it's important not to be too consumed in the sense that when you dig a little bit deeper, and what I have found is that a lot of us may have this um, image that we're all got it all together. But in a lot of cases, I always say the grass may be greener on the other side, but chances are it's very, it's fake. Um, so it's important, <laughs> to, it's, it's important to own your financial status. That, that's my number one rule. Own your financial status, whether that is that you're doing so well or you're doing so bad and never be embarrassed of where you are. That, that, once you start saying that to yourself, then you can move forward. So mm. what I mean by that is that if you do have a group of friends and it's a case of we're all going out this weekend, own your financial status and be proud to say, you know what, guys, I actually can't afford to go out this weekend because we're saving to get this and we're almost there and I'm super excited. So I'm going to give this one a miss and then maybe catch up with you guys next time. So you don't put that pressure on yourself that you constantly have to keep up with the, with the Joneses. And I always find it's interesting to, to talk to people in a roundabout way, I mean, the, the money conversations we can have with our partners or with friends can say a lot about how they handle money. So, for example, with my partner, I know we've both got very different money personalities. He's a small business owner. I work for somebody else. So I'm fortunate in that my pay comes in each fortnight as, as long as I keep working hard. <laughs> I have sick leave. I have pay, you know, holiday pay and so on. My super gets paid. He doesn't. So he works on a different kind of timetable. So that has caused 
financial arguments between us. So we've done a few quizzes and I do urge people to go online and do a, a personality a personality quiz. And we found out very early in our relationship that he handles his money and investments very different to I do. So that openness, that discussion we had very early on then allowed us to put strategies in place that work for us with how we set up our accounts, how we invest it and how we kind of report to one another as to how we're going with our goals. Mm, so taking a more proactive approach when it, it came to understanding each of your money personalities and how you can deal with them. Yeah, exactly. And you, that won't happen if you don't talk. So that's with your partners and people that you've got to plan with. But with your friends, it's also great to have a money buddy in the sense that if you've got a friend that, you know, you can say, look, I really need to focus on getting rid of this credit card. Can you help me? And then that friend really, hopefully, if you are being, if there's a trigger there that causes you to spend, and often the reason why we do spend comes down to a lot of emotions. Mm-hmm. You have a great day. And, and this is from the behavioural economist. I was working with in, in the book. If you have a great day, what are the chances that, well, how do you feel? Your emotions are high. You feel like, you know what? I deserve that. I deserve that. To, so you'll go out and buy. The same goes with a bad day. If you're having a really bad day, you may buy something to make you feel better. Sales can trigger a trigger in the sense that you look at a sale and you think the urgency of it. I know online when people are shopping Friday nights at around nine o'clock seem to be very busy for online retailers because people have unwinded for the week, probably got a glass of wine and off they go. They're feeling good. I think pin interest has been pinpointed, (laughs) pardon the pun, as the number one kind of platform for people to shop because you look at people's lifestyles online, you think, oh, I want that. But I do question how many pillows, do you you know, how many cushions does your bed need? Um, So, (laughs) So work out what are my triggers and put those fixes in place. And that's why I think if you do talk to a money buddy, then they can see that and help you in the sense you can call them and go, you look, I'm thinking of this. And they can say, well, you know what? No, Kate, you said to me, you need to do this. Walk away from that or, or you're not sticking to your plan. Sometimes you just need that little person to nudge you into the right direction. Because mm, it can be really lonely to go on a road to saving and changing your money behavior alone. Like you need to find someone that you can talk to, whether that's a friend online or in person, but someone to keep you accountable and sort of encourage you as you go along this road of paying down debt and saving up for a house deposit or something like that. Are you sounding like it's a road of pain to save? <laughs> <laughs> it, it can take a long time. It can, but you know, we'll go back to, uh, I never just save for the hell of saving. I always have to label something. So, and that's probably the number one rule when it comes to, you know, basic budgeting and expenses. So the first thing is you need to detox your finance, keep it really simple. And I liken it to, I've got these 13 steps that I kind of follow through life. They're called my essentials. And one of them is detox your finance, just like your home should be organized, like everything, you know, you've got a place for, you should know where every dollar goes. And Mm. there are a lot of formulas out there. And by no means did I make this up. This has been out there for ages. It probably started as an envelope system. And you've heard of these kind of formulas like 70, 20, 10, where, you know, you put say 70% of your everyday living costs, 20% for saving and 10% splurging. When I was speaking to this behavioural economist, uh, he was saying that a great example is, let's say you don't have anything organised with your money. So you've got, say, $5,000 and you've dumped it in one account. Mm. You're more Mm. likely to spend more than I am because I separate mine into five separate accounts and I label them. 
So I have an account with my kid's name, one called tax, one called splurge, one called holidays. You know, these days accounts are free, so you can set up as many as you like. Mm. So Mm. for you, if you had just one account with $5,000 and you want to, you know, something's triggered you, you want to spend $500, you'll do it easily because you'll think, oh, I've got $5,000 in there. There's $4,500 left. I'm fine. But for me to take $500 out of one of my accounts, I'm taking 50% out. And I'm also taking out of an account that I've named for a purpose. So that stops me from doing that. So that organisation that can trick the mind into, well, I've got to stick to these plans. And that's why it is important to spend some time organising your finances, labelling your accounts, just like someone, you know, would kind of clean out their house and label everything so it has a place for everything. Mm, Absolutely. Now, if we have unsupportive family or friends in our life when we're on our financial building journey, how do you deal with those people? How you get rid of them immediately. (laughs) (laughs) No, look, you're always going to have disruptors. And while I was talking about that in the, you know, the actual product world, but you can have disruptors in your family as well. You can have someone that actually is not helping you or is in your best interest. And a lot of cases, they're probably not doing well with their finances as well. I think it's a case of obviously supporting your family member, but then one of the the number of rules I have is try not to mix money with family as well. Mm. Uh, Because that can cause a whole lot of uh, arguments, especially if it's not structured and there are rules in place. But often at the case, if you do have a family member that is not helping you, then you've got to understand, well, okay, I'm not getting support there or they could be draining you. Mm-hmm. And I've seen that in my field over, you know, 20 odd years, I've seen situations where children are absolutely taking advantage of their parents or uh, a situation whereby parents have helped their children and they've entered into relationships and that's fallen apart and it is, you know, to their detriment. So uh, it is hard to draw that line between family members, but I think for everybody's well-being, they have to be there. Mm, Yeah, and it can get really messy because a lot of family members do loan money to each other unofficially and then uh, if the money doesn't get paid back within the uh, the agreed upon time frame, it can cause a lot of sort of strife. It can. And then you get into the ugliness of financial abuse, elderly financial abuse. Mm. It's interesting just the number of family members that it's, you know, the son or the daughter that could be creating that elderly financial abuse because one, sometimes when money gets in the way, all logic can be thrown out. I think at the end of the day, that old rule that if you're on a plane, you put the, the mask on yourself first and attend to others, it, it applies also to, to finances because at the end of the day, um, every I know I'm a parent and I want to help my children. Of course I do. Um, but at the end of the day, I've got to realise too, I don't want to be a burden on them when I'm older, which means I do need to put a support system for myself in place as well. So whatever I give out now could impact my own nest egg and my independence, you know, in my later years when I do need it. Mm. Now, speaking of children, I know some of my listeners do have young children in their lives. So what are some of the ways that they can help their children develop strong financial skills? With kids and money, look, a great website, obviously, is the Money Smart website. I do refer a lot of people Mm -hmm. to it. There's some great information. Interesting, I wrote this kid's book, The Great $20 Adventure, because my son then, he was what, I think around nine or 
eight years old. And um, parents uh, who have children at that age would know of these toys called Skylanders. They were really big at one stage and they cost about $15 a, a pop. These Skylanders were these little toys that you put onto um, uh, games. He would buy one all the time. Whenever he got birthday money, Christmas money, he would just keep buying these Skylanders. It got to the stage I walked past his playroom and it was the size of a mountain, these toys. And I looked at it and I said, oh my goodness, that is his deposit for a home. He's never going to leave home, this kid. He's going to be stuck here with me playing Skylanders. And then I realised I talk about money for a living and my own child hasn't got a concept of it which made me think I mustn't be alone. And, you know, kids are given birthday money from grandparents. So how do you teach that child the value of that dollar? So for me, this book came about because these characters were in my head, but it goes back to your children. I think when it comes to money, you do have to involve them in the conversation. And in a digital stage, the first purchase my son made was online. It wasn't with notes. Mm-hmm. So I am a great believer that we do have to teach them digitally because that is the world they're living in. I mean, we can we can give them coins, we can give them notes, and I did. I, I did start that way. But the relationship between coins and notes differed very fast when he got online and realised most of his shopping would be online. Mm-hmm. So it's important that we too understand the digital world because that's what we're trying to teach our kids in. I think one of the best uh, games I played with my kids as they get older is that I did the um, the money challenge whereby uh, each week, you know, a dollar in one week, two dollars in the next and so on. And I made some games out of it. Look, each parent is different in what they have. But I think engage your kids as soon as you can. As soon as they can start counting, I think you can start counting in dollars and cents. Mm. Um, and, and then as they move through the different ages, you, you then up it up a little bit more. The best thing I did for my child or what she did for herself is get a job, a part-time job, yeah. to realise what you do earn in an hour, how hard it is to make that and set up accounts and buckets for them as well. It's just getting your kids involved with the money process as soon as you think they're ready. And each kid is different. Um, like I said, when we first started talking, my son took a little longer to get grasp it than my daughter. And it's just meeting their needs and um, engaging them. Mm, and working out a way that works for them to interact about money. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, I think any conversation you have with them about money is better than no conversation. <laughs> Yeah, it is. And do involve them with how the household runs as well. Because what happens is that, like I said, they get to the age when they've finished school and whether they go out and do a trade or whether they continue to do higher education, they are going to get in a situation whereby, well, how do I pay my mobile phone? Is it monthly? Is it outright? There are basic things. I mean, when we get our first job, how do I find a super fund? How do I choose these? These are things that unfortunately still we're not doing as well in schools. And they're getting out of school and they're just thrown in the real world. And if they don't have their guards on, then you can see how all this disruption can uh, get them into a situation where they do get into a a financial mess before they even bought a house. Mm. Yeah, there's definitely quite a few challenges now to deal with um, once you've left home and working out how the whole world of finance works and all those sort of key things like super and taxes that you need to work out for yourself essentially. Yeah. Mm, Absolutely. Well, thank you so much for coming on to the podcast today, Effie. And if people want to learn more about you and CanStar, where should they go? Uh, you can go to the CanStar website. You could follow me on Twitter or Insta. I'm constantly posting little tips 
on there or uh, videos as well. Yeah, fantastic. Well, thank you so much again for coming on the show today. Thank you. Thanks, Kate. Thank you for listening to this episode of the How To Money podcast. If you enjoyed this, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts and send any questions our way via www.howtomoney.online. You can also catch us on Twitter and Instagram at howtomoneyaus and we'd love to hear from you. You've been listening to the How To Money podcast.